random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with comic book legend Paul Jenkins. Paul, good evening. Good evening. That was very British of you. Thank you. Or whatever (laughs) time it might be across the big pond, if that's where we're talking to you. No, no, I'm in I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, actually, so okay. I'm probably similar to where you are. Yeah, same same coastline. Yes, that's good. Okay. So, Paul, with this recording, we're having you on talking about your career, your storied career in the realm of comics, and you know, once again, you know, just like even lo- wiki walking through your Wikipedia page and reading all the titles that you've worked on. One of the ones, though, of why we're talking to you, at least for myself, my selfish little reasons, because I love the ability that I can go on the. Uh, I'm just going to keep I'm going to call it by its old name because I don't give a damn Twitter.com. I can go over there and like find so many comic creators that, you know, I connect with and that I really enjoy and that I'm going through on my massive read through of the amazing Spider-Man and all other titles being able to talk to you guys and just like bringing you on board saying, hey, I love the hell out of what you're doing. And Paul, I got to tell you, I love the hell out of what you're doing. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, the, the thing, social media uh, isn't isn't good for that much. But I, I, the one thing I do like for it is um, it allows us to really connect directly with fans, and that if you take it seriously and you interact fairly and calmly and quietly and uh, with absolute respect to the fans, I think it's such a benefit. You know, I, I actually really enjoy interacting with people. Um, I don't do a lot of shilling of my own stuff. I tend to be pretty quiet about that. I usually just post images of the dumb thing my cat just did or something funny my kids did. You know. Okay, before I even talk about Spider-Man, because I'm a cat dad myself. I got two little kittens. We got Rocket and Quill. They're adorable. But I digress. I wonder where the names came from. Internet. But, you know, in regards, <laughs> in regards to... Dare you, you know, salty. Okay. Being a uh, cat dad myself, how, what, what's the cat's names? What are the kitties' names? Um, well, I got three cats, but one of them is a very special one. I got one called Pixel, because the size of side of her fur looks like a bunch of pixelated stuff. A uh, little kind of scared cat, black cat called Slinky. But my guy is Claudius. He's actually pretty legendary. Everybody knows him. You know, uh, obviously Claudius for a reason because he's got funny claws. Um, but he's the funniest. I mean, I've always been a cat guy, and he is the funniest, coolest, sweetest natured. Uh, friendliest little cat I've ever owned in my life. So uh, he's a writing cat. He sits with me and just hangs when I'm working. So I've got a very special cat over here. That is wonderful. I like to hear that. A work cat. That's very good. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of a friend of the show, uh, Daiko, with her uh, cat, the uh, legendary Rocket. She has a cat named Rocket, too. And, (laughs) you know, you just see, like, you know, the foe she posts on social media and, like, oh, it's Rocket. And then there's uh, Bucky. And that's the end of that story. But... (laughs) I digress. So, Paul, I got to tell you, you know, going through the uh, Spider-Man stuff, 
going through the uh, late 90s, specifically 1998 all the way to about mid-2000s-ish, it is a magical time to be a fan of the webhead. And, you know, looking back, you know, a lot of comic fans, they'll always go with, like, okay, Spider-Man is good. you got to go with the main title, Amazing. But this is a time frame when these, the quote-unquote supplementary titles, these secondary titles, or B-Team, whatever, titles such as Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and Spectacular Spider-Man, they are on par, or dare I say, even better than the quote-unquote A title of Amazing. And I'm not just saying A because that starts with Amazing. I like that one. Thank you, Eddie. Um, But I like the fact that those titles are some of the most memorable and some of the honest-to-God best stories involving Spider-Man. And guess what? They're written by you, and they're pretty damn good. Uh, Well, thank you. I mean, uh, you know, I think the the interesting part of me writing Spider-Man uh, well, one of the interesting parts that people <laughs> uh, probably don't appreciate or, or like very much is I actually was asked to write it a couple of years before I agreed to do it. Um, um, if you actually take the period just before I kind of came in and started writing it, um, I had a wonderful editor, first of all, Ralph Macchio. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is one of the good guys, was one of the best editors I've had. I mean, he really got it. He was such a Marvel guy, and he understood what, what made things work. And... Um, I had just won an Eisner Award with Inhumans, and this was back in the time of Marvel Knights. Um, and, and frankly, you know, Marvel kind of came to me and said, you know, we, we'd like you to write some other titles. You know, we, we, we really liked what you did, and it's been very successful. But I was very full of it at the time, and I really wanted to write a book called The Century that I, I, I had created this character, and I pitched it to them for some time, um, so I really concentrated on the century, um, and I, I actually, the, the reason I said no to Spider-Man was because I didn't understand it. Um, I had read a few of it, and it had sort of gone through a time of the Clone Saga and stuff like that, and I told them, I'm, I'm just confused by it. I'm not a lifetime comic book reader, um, so when you try to kind of get into that and make any sense of it, um, I, I found it to be quite a struggle, so... I said no. <laughs> so I'm one of the few people, I suppose, that sort of said, no, thanks, but I just I don't know how to do it. I mean, then a, a couple of years went by, and I talked to Ralph again, and there was a series called Web Spinners, actually. Um, and I realized that the best story for me to write was a story that got to the core of Spider-Man um, that talked about what, what I thought he was and what I thought almost the problem was. And so the first two or three stories I ever wrote were actually for a book called Web Spinners. And it was all about Peter Parker um, coming into a situation of sort of finding that his life was too complicated and too convoluted and trying to work out for himself how he could unravel it and get back to who he needed to be. And that's actually how I started my Peter Parker run. Um, so, so once I knew what to write about, um, it was much easier. And once I knew how to define the character for myself, uh, it became simpler. And I learned a lot as well, actually. I, real- I began to realize that if I was ever going to have success at Marvel, it was going to be because I, I, I wanted to concentrate on character and story. And I was never really going to be very successful if somebody was bringing me to kind of write some episode of a crossover. That wasn't, that wasn't what I was good at, you know? And it's funny, too, because, you know, the titles of Spider-Man that you've done over the years and these stories that you've done with the webhead are some of the most heartfelt emotional stories that the character has. And one of my opinions is in regards to the work you've done on Spider-Man, and by the way, you know, where I'm at right now, 
I still got plenty of your stuff to read. Like you're still, you know, I'm in 2003, 2004, and you're on Spectacular for a while with Humberto Ramos. But what I love about your writing on the character is you get the humanity of the character. You get the emotional elements of the character that make Spider-Man such a character that, you know, connects with the audiences. And I feel like, you know, at that point of, you know, you saying you didn't get the character at that moment, when you came on board with the character, you ended up giving Spider-Man some of the most emotional and, again, most human stories. And I feel like Mm. you saying no at that moment was the perfect time. Like, that was fantastic. Because, yeah, you're not really going to get those kind of stories with, oh, crap, I have to tie this into a storyline, you know, with part two of five and, you know, over the course of, you know, all these other titles with other authors hot potatoing it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely completely accurate. Um, you know, when I, when I came in, um, and I've used this actually as part of my sort of college lecture now that I'm a graybeard, you know. Um, when I came in, they had just killed Mary Jane. She just died in a plane crash, apparently. And, you know, to me, I was like, look, I think that that doesn't have a lot of meaning because, A, you know, he's been through Gwen Stacy, Captain Stacy, Uncle Ben, pick one. You know, like all of these people were getting killed and, you know, that's enough tragedy, right? So the idea that he's lost his wife in a plane crash is is kind of silly to me. Plus, um, you know, it was almost like you could look at your watch and say, and she's back. You know, you knew she was coming back, right? And so a lot of what I have to say about storytelling is that I don't see the consequence in that, right? There's no consequence to her having died in a plane crash because you guarantee she was coming back, right? Now, contrast that to an old Stan Lee sort of Ditko story where, um, sorry, I'll give you my college lecture for a minute, um, where, where, where Spider-Man's coming across the top of the rooftops because he's late to get home uh, and he's dressed as Spider-Man, but he's got a blueberry pie that he picked up on the way home and Aunt May said, like, be home by six. And, and the feeling you would have had in those early comics is, I hope he gets home by six because she's going to find out he's Spider-Man. You know, it's uh, that's kind of, it had consequence almost. And now he comes around the corner holding a blueberry pie and he runs into into the Green Goblin um, and they have a fight and the blueberry pie falls down. And as a reader, you go, oh no, he dropped the pie. <laughs> the, the, the problem then is that when you do it right, you care about the fate of a blueberry pie more than you cared about the fate of his, of his wife. You know, because there was consequence in one and there was very little consequence in the other. And so I think it's really important for us to kind of look at this and say core stories about people and emotions and feelings are really the thing that keeps us coming back. Whereas events are the things that, you know, if they're not particularly well thought out, they don't bring us back. Now, in regards to, you know, that time frame, one of the books and, you know, I, I go through my comic search list whenever I go to a comic shop or I go to a comic book convention. I always look for my, you know, certain books. And, for example, sitting in there, as I've been going through reading Spider-Man through Marvel Unlimited, I end up discovering books that, you know, I didn't think I wanted or, oh, I got to hunt this down. For example, some that I have in here sitting in here are Amazing Spider-Man Annual 25, Spectacular Annual 11, etc., etc. And sometimes I'll even include little notes like Amazing Annual 20, or I mean 2000. Uh, and i putting, you know, in little parentheses, Klaus Janssen art, for example. One of the right. ones, though, on my list specifically is Peter Parker's Spider-Man number 33. And I know that you've gotten <laughs> conversations about this one. And I, again, yeah, see? And I knew that was coming. I knew it was coming. It's yeah. such a damn good story, and it's so emotional and impactful because 
you're not really telling a Spider-Man story. You're telling a Peter Parker and Ben Parker story. And yeah. what I love about it is you don't really need the action there to tell a great superhero story because you can have these soft, quiet moments reflecting in the past. And ladies and gentlemen, if you have not read the issue at hand, again, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, number 33, it involves the lovable losers, yes, the New York Mets. And <laughs> it's such a damn good story, and I can't recommend it enough. Like, you have this story with Mark, I believe Mark Buckingham is the artist on the story, correct? Yeah, so two, two Brits making a story about baseball, yeah. And I love it because it's such a impactful emotional story, and like you see that, you know, the relationship that Peter and Ben have. And it's very interesting to see this story, too, because, you know, this came out, I want to say, was it before or after the first Spider-Man movie? It has... uh, before the first Spider-Man. I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's before the first Spider-Man movie by far, yeah. Yes. And, you know, yeah. you see, like, this uh, moment where Peter gets mad at Uncle Ben because of the whole thing of, you know, the lesson that he teaches him. And it's at every yeah. opening day game, and... Peter just snaps and loses it and gets angry and is, you know, bitter and, you know, recalcitrant the entire time he's with him. But as the game progresses, it gets better for them. And, you know, you see he learns his lesson. Whereas, you know, like fast forward to 2002, you have the whole plot point of, well, stop trying to tell me you're my father, blah, blah, blah. I love the fact that you have this kind of moment where it's like he, you know, gets upset. He gets into his emotions in that moment. Yeah. And it's so great. And, like, again, like, there's not really much of a question <laughs> that I'm really asking, but I just love that story. Well, I, I can I can comment on that issue because, that, first of all, that issue of all the issues of Spider-Man I've ever written is the one that people bring to me the most. Hmm. Um, quite often people come to me with that issue and they're crying. Um, huh. And you can tell when someone's very emotional with a comic uh, because they'll come with only that one and they'll hold it in both hands. And so sometimes I see someone coming up to the table with a comic in both hands, I can say, I bet that's Spider-Man number 33, right? Yeah. Um, and the thing about it was, you're right. In fact, what upsets people sometimes is when I tell them that if you look at the book, there's only one page in which he's dressed in the Spider-Man costume. It's, it's not about Spider-Man. Uh, it's about Peter Parker and his Uncle Ben um, and so, you know, the way that story was written, um, I had gone to Wales to see my grandfather. You know, I live in the States, and uh, my grandfather was, was, was dying. Um, and it's very challenging for me, you know, because when my family members are about to pass, um, pass away, you know, I have to go to Britain to see them. But quite often I'll have to go see them and then get on the plane and come back. So I went to the old people's home in, in Ryada in Wales. I uh, saw my granddad, um, the football was on, you know, soccer was on, and, and his favorite team, Chelsea, were playing. But he didn't really want to watch it, you know, he, he wasn't interested. And um, he told me, well, boy, I'm, I'm just, I'm closing down, I'm dying, and I'm, I'm fine, I, I'm, I've had enough, you know. So it was very emotional for me, and one of the, I couldn't really get him to join in with me, but then I started singing some old songs that were from London in the, in the war, you know, and he taught them to me when I was a little boy. And I would sit on his knee and we would sing some old song. So I started singing this song with him and I suddenly realized that all of the old people in that old people's home were, were singing along with us. They all knew the song. It was like built into them. And there were a couple of people uh, with dementia. There was an old lady 
um, sitting by the window, just looking out the window, who was so far gone, but even she didn't realize that she was mouthing the words and singing the song along with us. And so it was very emotional for me, and I, I said goodbye to my grandfather, and I kind of knew that was it. You know, he was waiting for me to come see him. And as I got on the plane back to the States, uh, he passed away. And, and I was actually, I wrote that issue on the plane on the way back, and it was all about how we connect to the people that we love through things like baseball or songs or traditions like Thanksgiving or something like that. And I suppose it was just so in the moment that, that it, it, everything got onto the page, you know? And then when people read the issue, they were really, really emotional about it. And it's interesting because, you know, you look at comic books as a medium, specifically the genre of the superhero story, and, you know, it's always categorized as, you know, punches and the violence and this and that. But what I love about the comic book medium, specifically the genre of superheroes, is you can have those emotional moments, these emotional story, you know, telling techniques that help out so much. And they show it's more than just this, you know, and I love stories like Peter Parker, number 33, because it shows how much you can do with this art form, you know? Yeah, and I think if you actually move ahead a couple of issues as well, number 35 was one that people loved as well. It was about um, a little black kid um, who lived in a tough part of town. And, um, you know, he, he it's not really about Spider-Man in a sense. It's actually about the little kid. And he, he believes he's got, he's, got, he's got a Spider-Man trading card and he obsesses over this trading card, and then Spider-Man will show up in his, at his window or in his room and say, hey, buddy, hey, secret sidekick. And so he believes he has a best friend called Spider-Man. But it's very much about us, isn't it? It's about, like, as children, as people, we, we tend to see Spider-Man, ourselves as Spider-Man, and Spider-Man is, is us, right? Yeah. And so the little kid kind of goes through his story, and, and things go badly for him. But what you begin to realize is that every positive man in his life, his uncle and his teacher, those words that they are saying are actually the words that Spider-Man is saying to him. So you begin to realize that Spider-Man represents all of the positive men in his life. And right near the end, um, because, I mean, I suppose we'll have to do spoilers, sorry, um, but right at the very end, the whole point of it was, and this is, you know, long before Miles Morales and so on, um, you know, his mom dies and he has to go away and Spider-Man comes to visit him for one last time and he kind of wants to hug Spider-Man and Spider-Man says, no, no, you know, heroes shake hands and as they shake hands, um, Spider-Man takes his mask off and it's revealed to be a black man. It was actually modeled on the basketball player, Alan Iverson. Um, so it's just like the kid, the kid would see his idol or someone that he, he knows as Spider-Man. I think that was a really important story for us as well. Definitely important and definitely a twist on that. So, uh, spoiler be damned, I'm glad I knew about that, that story. But where did it really all start for you, Paul, with, uh, you know, what age might, were you and what your, you know, interest what you got drawn into, so to speak, with uh, at the beginning? Uh, are you talking about, like, how I got into comics? Yep. Well, um, you know, I've, 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 I've obviously spoken about it a few times in the last couple of years. Um, one of the things that, that people would not have known about me is, is um, that my brother and I were raised in pretty extreme poverty when we were children. And um, my father left when I was five. Um, my mum, you know, raised us uh, on, on a farm. We, we, we generally had a really difficult time. You know, we often didn't have electricity. Sometimes we didn't. We lived in a caravan. Um, you know, it's a pretty crazy lifestyle, right? Mm. 
Um, and what we got was every so often our grandparents in London, which, you know, was a giant city and we were out in the country, um, would send us a, a rolled up, like a roll of, it was my grandmother, she would send us a roll of comics. Uh, in those days, it was some British comics. It was the British reprints of Spider-Man and Daredevil. So that's, you know, two characters that I just always loved. Um, and then a load of the old EC comics, you know, like Uncanny Tales and Tales to Astonish and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we were getting these like crazy comics, but we didn't get them very often. So they were like massively treasured. And uh, I thought it was very funny when I came onto Spider-Man. Um, my mum had found a little book that I had drawn. It was like probably the first comic book strip I ever drew. And I kid you not, um, <laughs> it was Spider-Man versus the actor Dudley Moore. Spider-Man versus Dudley oh Moore. And I don't even know why. Um, but what's funny about it is that I drew it and I thought I would draw something really good, Spider-Man versus Dudley Moore. And then I couldn't draw Dudley Moore to look like him, so I covered his face, completely blacked it out, and it was Spider-Man versus Dudley Moore with a black face. Wow. So, you know, at least I was inventive. I was clearly going to be a writer and not an artist at that point. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And... Two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. See, I don't know who would win in the fight, Arthur uh, Spidey. I mean, you know, he's got... Uh... He's got his uh, driver on his side. I think, you know, Dudley could win, maybe. He could, he could have a go. He could have a go, yeah. <laughs> and he's rich. That's right. So, we, you know, I loved I loved Marvel comics such as I saw them. I think, if, if I recall, the characters I loved the most were Spider-Man, Daredevil, and The Thing. I thought The Thing was great. Um, don't know why. I just, I really loved The Thing. Um, but we didn't get very many of them, so we probably had about five of them. So, like, five comics total. Um... And so I wasn't necessarily immersed in the lore of comics. And then when I came to the United States, um, what I did see was the British comics like 2000 AD, right? Like those were the ones that we sort of grew up with and we really liked those. When I came here to the States, um, I was lucky enough to meet the creators of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And so I worked with Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird for a while and then we did Tundra. Then I became an editor, editor-in-chief. Um, and after having worked on that side of the thing for a while... Um, I pitched to write comic books for for Vertigo, and I'm like in the craziest way. I went to meet the editor of Hellblazer at San Diego, and asked him if I could try out. And he knew that I'd never written anything, but he let me try out, and I I got awarded <laughs> Hellblazer. Um, I have no idea how they chose me, but they let me write it. And so my first gig, literally in comics, the first thing I wrote was Hellblazer. Then it looks like it was a long run too, from uh, in, the, in the mid to late nineties. 
So um, yeah, I've written yeah, I've written more issues of Hellblazer than anybody actually. And what what is it about the character of John Constantine that you know connects with readers oh so well? Because like, and it's funny too because when it comes to Hellblazer, every run since the initial uh, one to three hundred the character kind of falls off a cliff and just disappears. Like, you'll see, you know, like a run of Hellblazer, and it doesn't have the same impact as that 300-issue run had. Yeah. Um, well, here's what I would say it is about John, right? Um, if you do him the right way, which I think we did when we all started doing him, you know, from Alan through um, Garth and, and Jamie Delano and myself, um... The, the thing that John Constantine can do and what he does is that he's got no power whatsoever, but he has the ability to sort of look the devil in the eye and the devil will blink first. I think that was either explained to me early on by Lou Stathis, my editor, or, or we, we had that part of our discussion. But generally, you know, um, that's a great way of using him. Now, when you take a look at the way that he's been done in the film, he does all this, like, I mean, the first time I saw him on TV, as much as I thought the actor was a really good John Constantine, um, he had a, a problem to solve, and he pulls out something, and he does this, like, magical hocus-pocus, and now he gets a magical set of arrows that lead him down the road to where he needs to go. <clears throat> and to me, um, that's completely the opposite of the way that I wrote John Constantine. And I think that when he was written more effectively, like he doesn't use magic to try and get something. He avoids using magic as much as he can because he knows how dangerous it is. And so I think, you know, if you don't have the guile to write him as a clever guy that manages to outwit people, then really all you're doing is writing like magic-y stuff with Hocus Pocus in it, and it doesn't really feel like anything. I do get a kick, by the way, that you talked about Constantine just now on, you know, the television version with, I believe, uh, Matt Ryan and you completely glossed over, and rightfully so, the Keanu Reeves one, as I lovingly call him, Notstantine, uh, because he is not <laughs> he is not him whatsoever. And, you know, yeah. if I, I really hope since uh, Papa Gunn has come on board at DC that that uh, Constantine movie does not happen whatsoever. I really don't want that to happen. <laughs> I, I don't think they get Constantine right ever. Um, you know, I have a rule about writing magic anyway. Um, and the rule is that if you use magic, it should cost you more than you get from it. Yeah. So you're taking out a loan, in a sense, against the universe. You used it so you could solve a problem, but in a little while, it's going to bite you in the ass really badly. Yeah. And I think, um, I think they never do that, or they stop doing that with it, and that's why it's not working. I mean, it's, like, it's essentially, you know, you did it, but what, at what cost? At what cost, right, exactly. Now, I want to go back over to some of the Spider-Man stuff because I, th- I find it so interesting that, you know, you worked on Web Spinners, and yet there's one series I don't believe, you know, and I am, you know, looking at the Wikipedia, but you didn't do any of Tangled Web, correct? Well, I think Web Spinners is Tangled Web. I think web it's called Web Spinners Tangled Web, isn't it? No. Uh, Not sure. T- Tales of. No. Tangled Web was like the one where it was like, you know, where they had like little one or two issue stories you know sometimes mm. one shots but what that's like i love titles like web spinners and i love titles like tangled web of spider-man because of the fact you can tell more of the spider-man world and you know utilizing yeah. ancillary characters or you know a, a story where it's just like spider-man is in the background you know and i feel like yeah. also that's where titles like superior foes of spider-man by nick spencer like that really does a great job because again 
it's more than just him. It's also about everyone else involved in his, no pun intended, tangled web. Right, right. I mean, um, I know then I guess I didn't get to write Tangled Web. Um, but what I would say is that I generally got to write an awful lot of the stories that I wanted to write. You know, I didn't I didn't really miss out on any of them. Um, I, and so, you know, writing in Web Spinners or something like that was actually quite good for me. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. And I got to write a lot of stories that uh, in, in the regular titles that I really wanted to write, you know, some really strange ones. Um, well, they might seem strange. Um, for example, near the end of my run in Spectacular, um, I wrote an entire issue set in a, in a poker game, right? And people love that issue because ultimately it's just, in a sense, I, I think I was watching poker on television and realizing, man, this is the ultimate, like, good versus evil, the ultimate showdown. And so the idea of Spider-Man sort of facing off against the kingpin where someone at some point is going to go all in with their chips and the other one's going to call him, and it's like, okay, who wins, right? That kind of thing was really um, interesting to me. And what was so cute about it, what was so nice about it, we would write things on the side of it, like Dr. Strange tried to play poker, and he was absolutely terrible at it. Here he is, the master of the arcane, and he can't remember like whether three of a kind beats two pairs, right? And so it was really sweet. It was like... You know, everyone's kind of making, like, the, all of the superheroes around, but they're all kind of making fun of Doctor Strange. And at one point, he, he tries to buy back in again, and he conjures money in the air. And they're like, does he have a bank account? <laughs> so we used to do these, like, fun little things with Spider-Man that really took the superheroes and tried to see whether or not they they were real people. You know, and I think that's, that's actually something, you know, if you make them relatable like that, then that's actually something that keeps us with them for a bit. I also like the fact that those Spider-Man stories you would tell are some of the most inventive ones in the Marvel Universe. You know, like, you, you know, turned it on its ear, whereas, you know, like other creators might just be like, eh, I'm just going to, you know, do a standard by-the-numbers kind of story. And you're just like, nah, we're going to try something different. And I love that about that run. Yeah, we, we always did something different, except that, you know, things began to change throughout my time at Marvel, I think, you know. Um, when I came on board... Spider-Man especially, um, one of the things that I was told, uh, and this happened to me in lots of interviews, but I'd already been through this situation, right? So when I came on Hellblazer, I should go back to them, uh, a lot of people said to me, well, aren't you terrified of coming on after Garth Ennis? Um, You know, because Garth's run had had been successful. And my answer was, it's a comic book. Like, if I I wrote it and said I was scared of writing it, what what kind of book would that be? Yeah. So when I came on to Spider-Man, I was told... There are no stories left. There's nothing to do with it. It's done. And you just have to go back to that time, early 2000, I think, uh, when, when really the comic industry was just pulling out from the bankruptcy. And um, we were told you can't do something. And I'm like, we just did it with Inhumans. You know, we're, we're doing fine, thanks very much. I know we can tell great Spider-Man stories. And, and this is what happened. Um, here we are, me and Bucky, who, by the way, I just spent time with him in San Diego. It's so great for the two of us to catch up. And we're both Brits, and we get on the phone. Um, and I've told this story a couple of times. You know, we got on the phone, and we had a call. And it's like 3 o'clock in the morning my time, because I love staying up late. It was 8 o'clock. He was having a cup of tea for breakfast. And he and I started talking about what kind of things do we want to do. Now, the way I am as a writer in comics, one of the first things I do is call my artist and say, come on, let's work out what we want to do, because it's a collaborative medium. Right? Like, I'm not going to just hand you a script. I'm going to find out what kind of things you like and what do you want to do. So Bucky and I got into a conversation about Peter. 
And the very first thing that we both said was, man, it's so convoluted. Whatever happened to his sense of humor? Like what used to happen was, in, and this is in the early comics, uh, you know, he'd go up against Dr. Octopus and the reason that he would win against Doc Ock is not because he would punch him harder, which is kind of boring. He'd win because Dr. Octopus is utterly humorless, whereas Spider-Man has a funny sense of humor. So he'd, crack, he'd do these wisecracks and drive Doc Ock crazy, right? So we started talking about ideas and we started cracking up laughing. We actually came up with this idea um, to do a story about mimes. Like, how funny would it be to have Spider-Man fight a bunch of mimes? Uh, we came up with the character Typeface because we thought that was really silly and really stupid. And we knew that it would probably aggravate people, but we also thought it was just time to have a fun villain. Typeface just ended up in the latest movie, and he's been used plenty of times, right? Um, so what we were allowed, to, what we did was we just kind of got to the core of it. And the core of it was, man, this guy was really good with his sense of humor. Well, where did he get his sense of humor from? And to us, the answer was Uncle Ben. And if you could just see that he and Uncle Ben, when he was a little kid and he was an orphan and he was really worried about life, and he comes to live with his aunt and uncle and he's just lost his parents, and Uncle Ben and him start playing practical jokes on each other and they do it for their entire life. And the old lady gets it a few times, you know, and she's sort of laughing at them. But ultimately, you began to realize that what made him able to be Spider-Man was because he had a sense of humor. And now he felt like he'd lost it. But, you know, he regains it a little bit. And once we got to the core of that, and once you understood how the character worked, that's when we could just do him forever because it was easy to see what kind of person he was. Now, it's funny because in a lot of ways, you know, I feel like the ultimate uh, Marvel versus DC, and when I say DC, I mean Warner Brothers kind of thing, I feel like the ultimate uh, crossover would be Spider-Man versus Bugs Bunny when you really think about it. <laughs> Because he really is the Bugs Bunny of the Marvel Universe. And the way, you know, you had described the whole idea of, you know, every single hero or every single villain that Spider-Man faces against is like an unwitting Elmer Fudd or a, you know, Daffy Duck. Well, not Daffy Duck. Daffy's pretty hilarious. But, you know, just the quote-unquote humorless kind of characters. And it's always mm. going up against that. And I love, you know, like it's like borderline Dukes of Hazard. How's that Spider-Man going to get himself out of this one? It's like, it's right. that every week. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things that we were able to do, I mean, later on when I did Spectacular with Umberto, um, we, did a, we did a book in Peter Parker, actually. Uh, it was The Revenge of the Green Goblin. It um, may have been Revenge of the Return of the Green Goblin. But whichever one it was, it was really in-depth. You know, it was a four-part series, and it really got onto the core of it. But ultimately, you know, the Green Goblin wasn't necessarily a, a, an Elmer Fudd. He was actually like, like he admits to Peter Parker, or they both talk to each other, and they both say, look, we're pretty similar. You know, it's just that I'm a good guy and you're a bad guy, but we're not that dissimilar, frankly. And this story is where, you know, once again, you know, the Goblin kind of comes to Peter and says, you're going to be my son. Like, you're going to inherit the Goblin mantle. So it's very much like Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, isn't it? It's like, you're going to be my son and do the things I want you to do. And the son says, no, 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 it's not too late to change. You, you know, that kind of dynamic. And once we got to do that kind of story, you began to realize, like, who Peter Parker was, who his villains are. Um, there are a bunch of stories with villains that I wish I had written because my, I love to get to the core of who a character is. Uh, there's one famously that I didn't do that I'd, I'd love to do um, about the vulture um, because he's, he's kind of an older guy 
And I just think there's an interesting story to be told about how we age and and what happens when you get really old and you're still trying to be a supervillain, but you just can't hack it anymore. You just, I'm tired of this. <laughs> um, so I think there were all... Spider-Man is a fantastic character because you get a, a load of really, really good villains that have come over the years and you can tell lots and lots of different types of story about people with them. Paul, of all the characters that you have done, any others stand out as being, well, I know you had to say no because you weren't familiar with Spider-Man, but any others that came across your path that you either you know took too well or took a while to wrap your head around and get a story out because, again, you've gotten to experience and be a part of many, many characters, Marvel or otherwise. I mean, the one that was easiest and the, my favorite work I ever did for Marvel was for Captain America. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, my family has a military background. Um, generally, if you're in my family, you get put in the front lines. And, you know, in the first war, we lost a lot of people in, from my family, you know. Um, um, so writing Cap was interesting because I lived in the States for a long time and I understand history. Um, and it was very much a love letter to the American military and the foundation of this country and, and, and what America can and should be. Um, and when I wrote those books, uh, I, I, I tell you what happened is that Tom Brevoort called me and he said, would you like to write Captain America? <laughs> and I said, well, and he said, we do you have any pitches that you might want to do. And I said, because we're doing this book called Theater of War and they were double like oversized comics. And I said, yeah, let me get back to you. And about two hours later, I called him and I said, Tom, I've got four pitches for you. And I pitched him the first one. And there was a funny thing that happened. Uh, Tom heard my pitch and he heard the end of it. And he kind of let out a little involuntary laugh. And I said, I know what you're doing there, Tom. You were going to cry, weren't you? And he said, yeah, you know, I've done this for 35 years and you just like made me tear up. And I said, okay, well, I want to do all of these. And they let me. So I wrote those, those four issues and they were so... Uh, they were so built into the mythos of what really makes Captain America who he is and why is he important? What does he actually represent? Um, that I'm, I'm like super proud. I think the one character that Marvel had, I wouldn't say I, c- I couldn't do him. I just, I didn't, I had some ideas for him, but I don't think they were ever really going to let me do it, was, was Doctor Strange. Um, I thought that you could get Doctor Strange and try to do it in which it became clear that Doctor Strange had to pay for his magic because that's a problem character for them. I realized that the movie was great, um, but as a comic book, they really struggled with that character at times because it was very difficult to have him do anything than do arcane stuff and have loads and loads of crazy stuff happen, but none of it felt like it was connected to people. And I really wanted to bring that to the connection to him as a person, you know? So get that makes sense too. So uh, so yeah, and I do re- recall the um, theater of war stuff that you that you did. Those are among many many that I have to catch up with. But uh, those are single single individual stories, or they uh, connect to each other. Uh, they're individual stories, um, and they sort of take four. There, there are four or five books that I write. So the first thing is um, one of the hardest books I've ever written in my entire career was a series called Mythos for Marvel. Um, this when the film started getting popular and they said, look, Paul, we want you to do something. We want you to take the origin story, usually written by Stan and Jack or Kirby or something. Um, and we want you to, to also take the film origin, which most people know, and fuse them together. But we also want you to give it a unique voice. And um, 
one of the first, you know, one of the ones that I liked the best out of that entire series was the Captain America one. I mean, it's largely because my next door neighbor was a survivor of Pearl Harbor. He, um, he was on the USS St. Louis. And my youngest boy is, is, has his middle name. Uh, his name, guy's name was Doug Huggins. And Douglas, Doug Huggins was such a wonderful man. What kind, beautiful soul he was. And um, he, he told me once that, you know, his, his, he showed me a picture of his best friend, Bobby Shaw, taken out Pearl Harbor the morning of the attack. He puts, he's got his arm around Doug. They take a picture in the street. They go to their respective ships. And, you know, a few hours later, um, uh, Bobby Shaw was, was on the Arizona and he died, right? And um, so I really wanted to write about that and that feeling and get people to remember, you know, that the greatest generation, you know, I'm from Great Britain. And so, you know, my country was sort of like under attack. And, and I don't think you can get someone like me to talk about, say, Spitfires and the Royal Air Force and, and um, the Battle of Britain without kind of getting teary, right? But equally so, I think the idea that this country, America, sent so many of its young men away thousands of miles to fight for the freedoms of other people is, is pretty amazing, right? And um, so Cap, Cap was all about that. And once I wrote them, uh, you know, I had the privilege of, of putting Bobby Shaw into the first big book that I did. I had the privilege of putting Doug as the main character or one of the biggest characters in, in the Mythos book that we did. Um, and I don't know if you're that familiar, but if you ever see the origin of Captain America... There's a kid in the street with a catapult, like, bullying him, right? <laughs> and I made that kid Doug Huggins, and then he enlists with Doug Huggins, but he gets rejected. Then he's undercover, so he's actually in Palermo, Sicily, with Doug Huggins. And then he ends up pinning the Medal of Valor to Doug Huggins, and by the end of the story, it's the present day, and Doug is the only one left. And he's a really old man now. So it's, like, super emotional stuff. Um that talks about the plight of the common soldier. Um, and I loved it. I just think it was like Captain America. I could write that forever. Um, <laughs> I love that character. Now, in regards to just the idea of writing a story with heart, what do you think is the main thing that should be included for a story such as that? <clears throat> well, I think it's very simple, but perhaps somewhat complex, right? The simple thing is, if you can't tell me why a story deserves to exist, then don't write it. It's not sufficient to say, I'm writing the story because I like robots. Or I'm writing this story because I think Dr. Doom is really interesting and he, he should have, you know, a giant unicorn, right? Those aren't, they don't mean anything. Those are just things. And I think that comics historically, especially American comics at times, falls into that bad trap of just having a character show up in a bigger robotic suit you know like it's not interesting that iron man has a suit and then the plot point is this is a bigger and better suit right that doesn't mean anything it's just an event right so i think you have to kind of say like why why am i telling this story and you also have to say who is this person so if i go back to spider-man i was able to say you know i've said this quite a lot of times but you know i define spider-man as as a guy who's married with two kids and he wakes up and he's got the flu and he gets on the highway to go to work and he's late. It takes him a couple of hours. He's, he's coughing and sneezing all day. His boss yells at him. He gets in the car, comes back home. His wife's upset. Dinner's in the cat. Kids have already gone to bed. and He's still got the flu. 
and he eats, his, you know, he eats a, something alone and goes to bed and wakes up the next day and does it again. Because none of us have, have, have swung around punching people, but all of us have experienced like parenting, for example, and, and teachers and people who are heroes, actual real heroes, you know, people that work really hard or, or, or give of themselves. And that's who I think he is. So as long as you can define like who the character is to yourself, or as long as you can say, well, I'm going to write about um, how it feels to, to, to be in love, but the other person doesn't love you back, or some, some theme. Every story should have a theme. And I think it's disappointing at times in American comics, at times, when you're just seeing stuff that doesn't have any thematic stuff whatsoever. Yeah, and that's part of, uh, I guess, the whole concept of a filler, perhaps, to keep us, not a storyline, but issues going. And I don't want to say because certain artists and writers get put on or just, I don't know, stories get interchanged, moved around just to keep something, you know, keep cranking out the issues. I, I suppose it's all about how much are we going to bring in this month. Maybe that's what it comes to the bottom line. Yeah, I think Marvel, uh, for a time, would would say to me, look, you know, um, I really, I, uh, they would say, I wish that you would not do single issues, for example. And I, I said, look, uh, to me, I hate the idea that you could bring someone in a comic book store that doesn't know anything about comics and take them to the comic book rack and say, pick one up. And chances are that the one they picked up would be like too complicated. You know, it'd be part seven of nine or, or, or part three of 15. Or, you know, it, it refers to this and that, and they can't get it. And so a lot of the comic books I did were just one and done, like read it and and finish with it and decide if you like that story by itself. And i got to tell you, you know, the amount of single-issue stories that people come to me with and say, oh, my God, this was something I always remember. So, oh, this really meant something to me. Whereas they feel that a little bit less when they come up with a, with a, a six-parter. Because it's so spread out, you know. That's another reason why you know doing it in one shot, meaning that on two levels, of course, is something that can be more difficult to do than having a drawn-out six-part story. Yep, yep. It's it's apparently the most difficult thing, really. I think if you're a comic writer, it's you know a lot of people find it to be difficult, and I love it. Right? It's like literally my wheelhouse. I love doing English stories. And I feel like, you know, we uh, did an interview over at Terrificon with uh, Garth Ennis that will be released eventually. But during the interview, I talked to him because he talks about how he would write, you know, eight to ten page stories. And as someone, you know, myself, I did a class or two at the Kubert School on the uh, online portion with Amy Chu. And, you know, we were taught how to do eight to ten page stories. And I feel like if you can't tell a story in that parameter, what makes you think you can tell it in such a larger, grandiose style, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think I think once it got to the point of like absolute deconstruction where you've got like a nine issue story and if you actually look at it you probably could have done that in two. You know? Yeah. Uh, um I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to necessarily be critical. I just think, you know, we should look at ourselves and wonder, you know, are we really needing to to, to kind of spread that story out? Remember people are paying for these stories, right? So they don't get anything out of it for like nine issues. And I, I think that's a shame. So I tended to be a bit more dense and condensed. And going back to what you said earlier about writing what you wanted to write, the development and origin for you of uh, Century. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the simple truth is that, you know, I wanted to write 
Um, uh, okay, so here's how it came about. Um, I was Alan Moore's editor for some time when I was at Tundra. Um, I was lucky. I was Alan Moore's editor. You know, I was Dave McKean's editor, George Pratt, Neil Gaiman. So I had a lot of people to learn from when I was really, really young. And I happened to be in Northampton, uh, Northampton, England with Alan. I was at his house and we were talking through big numbers, trying to get that comic book to be finished and, and going through story points. And Alan had this incredible chart of the story arc of of each of the characters. And he talked with me about how he would write books and, and sort of things like that. He's very generous with his time, right? And so a weird thing happened to me as I was, I was sort of sitting with him and I, I said, you know, Alan, the way you talk about writing is, is sort of the way that I've just sort of thought about writing. In other words, I must be on the right track somehow because you're telling me things that I've actually thought of before, which surprises me because you're so accomplished and I, I've not written anything. Do, do you think I should try doing this? Because I, I like creating and I've, I've always wanted to maybe be creative, but most of my time was spent doing music. And he said, <laughs> if you give it, a sh give it a shot, Paul, I think you should give it a shot, right? And so eventually, you know, I went to San Diego and, and met Lou Stafford, the editor of Hellblazer, and just found a way in without even doing it. But at the time, uh, I, I really wanted to do, um, you know, I thought superheroes might be interesting to me, but I was more of a Vertigo guy. And I was talking to Karen Berger when I was at Vertigo, and... I said, you know, I'd like to do a, a character called Our, Our Man, right? Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with Our Man, but essentially I think he takes a pill for an hour and it makes him a superhero um, and then it wears off, right? And I said, man, if I had that pill, I would be so addicted. That's the ultimate addiction. It would be a great story about addiction. Um, but the problem was that Karen said, you know, like really at Vertigo, we just aren't equipped to do any superhero stories whatsoever. It's just not something I'm going to do. I think you should make up a new character. Um, so I did, and that character was the Sentry, and it was talking about mental health issues, um, addiction issues, um, stuff like that. And what we did is we created a character who was a Superman, but he had the, the kind of the Marvel type of twist. Um, he also had this terrible evil villain to fight, but if you find out he's mentally ill and he's schizophrenic, and so when he becomes the Sentry, um, he also becomes the Void. And now he's destined to fight himself to the end of time. It, you know, it, he's his own worst enemy, right? And so because of that, it was a really unique take on Superman. And um, I pitched it, and you just couldn't find the place for it because Vertigo wouldn't want it, but the regular superhero universes didn't want it. So when, when we won an Eisner, <laughs> we won an Eisner for Inhumans, and I managed to persuade Jay, hey, man, I really want to do the, the Sentry. And he said, yeah, yeah, I like that. That sounds really good. And so we kind of had carte blanche to do a lot of things that we wanted to do, and instead we insisted on letting them, uh, having them last be century. So now, before we wrap this episode up, one of the things that I want to talk about is what is next? Because I see you're doing a lot of stuff over at the Distinguished Competition, and I'm curious, what is next? Well, I, I, I'm actually not doing something at DC right now. I'm not. Um, but you know, I'll tell you what's next. Um, I'm, I like moving across different media. Um, I work in different media, right? I like new media. I like uh, augmented and varied reality storytelling. Um, here's what's next, right? I very rarely do teasers because I just don't care for them. I'm not particularly using my stuff to shield myself. 
Um, I'm writing a few books for a sort of like Web3 kind of project that I really like. It's actually a project called OniForce, and I'm helping those guys build an entire world because I'm very intrigued by new media and new technologies. Um, the, the, the simple thing that people kind of call them is NFTs, and NFTs were hugely problematic because they were just a stupid scam of PFP sort of images, and, you know, a JPEG is not worth $28 million, right? But NFT doesn't actually work like that. It's actually a new technology. It's a very, very useful technology that will be in our lives for the next you know, 20, 30 years. So I like working on that project. And as I'm working on that project, and I just was in San Diego, um, I spoke to a number of publishers, uh, including one that you are extremely familiar with. And I'm going to go back and start doing comics again because uh, I've really taken quite a break recently. So as of the date of this recording that you're making, um, I just signed a contract to go back to uh, one of the bigger companies. <laughs> uh, and you'll find out, I suppose, pretty soon. Well, thank well, you for sharing. I certainly hope it is who I think it is. And if that is the case, wonderful. If it is not who I think it is, also wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate to be coy because I don't like doing those like teaser things. Uh, but the truth is, um, I think it's only fair uh, for, for the people that I'm working with to make those announcements because, you know, they spend a lot of money on, on uh, um, uh, marketing and advertising, right? So I don't want to preempt them. Mm -hmm. But I'm excited. You know, I, I haven't really done that for a while. I, I kind of stepped away from it for a while um, because I work in any other different media and I, I just I had other interests. But I realized I missed my friends and I missed this industry. And so I just signed a contract, and I'm about to get work in on any number of books. And actually, there's a number of publishers I just talked to at San Diego that I'm now working on some of this stuff with. So, um, you know, hopefully very soon. Well, fingers crossed. Thank you for that uh, insight, and we're looking forward to it. Yeah. Or them. Fantastic. Well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate this, this interview. It was fun. Now, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on them, their social medias? Uh, well, none of us know what Twitter has become. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's called X now, and you know it's kind of a mess. Uh, but you can find me at my Paul Jenkins. Um, I'm easy to find on Facebook, um, and then you know I think I am uh, Paul Jenkins writer uh, on on Instagram. Uh, I think so. I don't post enough on Instagram. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Once I get back into a bit more of the comics, I'll probably post a little bit more. Um, but generally, you can find me, and then presumably you'll learn an awful lot more about my cat, Claudius. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Paul Jenkins. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! <laughs>